welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. I'd like to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is going to be our launching pad for the next four weeks. The next four weeks after prayer night, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14 because it forms one long sentence. It's the longest Greek sentence in the Bible. Over 200 words, it would drive you grammar people nuts because it's a, it's a run-on sentence. And Paul is just bursting out like a volcano of praise, and he just can't stop. And we're just going to be looking at verse 3 because it contains, actually this whole section, this whole book, contains a particular doctrine in it. That if you miss this doctrine or this biblical truth, you will miss the whole entire Christian life. You will miss the whole letter to the Ephesians. You will not understand salvation you will not understand christianity and how it separates itself from every other religion it is the whole of the gospel and so with that to get us thinking on this theme i have a question when it comes to your religious beliefs or faith practices how do you describe yourself So if someone were to come up to you and say, how do you identify religiously? Or how would you describe your faith practices? How would you respond? In fact, I want you to ask your neighbor and treat them as if you've never met them before. In all seriousness, and ask them that question. How do you describe yourself religiously? Or how would you describe your faith practices? Ask ask your neighbor that. Let's see what you have to say. How would you do it? A little practice here. 30 seconds. Not asking you what you believe, but how you identify yourself. So, so I don't know what many of you are saying. I don't know how you would respond. I, I think I could give a guess of what you would say if someone were to come to you. And I know that if I were to ask a lot of people in our church or maybe even in America that question, how do you describe or identify Religiously, many people would probably say things along this line. Well, I belong to a non-denominational church, or I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm, I'm a Catholic. I'm, uh, I'm a Lutheran, right? I'm part of the Anglican church, maybe some would say. 
You would probably say, uh, maybe, I'm an evangelical, which actually is the term that separates you from Roman Catholics, or you're a Protestant. Um, some people identify themselves as that, or maybe you said, I'm, I'm Reformed. I, I'm, I'm a Reformed Christian uh, in light of the Reformation. But I'm guessing that many of you probably said, I'm a Christian. <laughs> That's how I describe myself. I am a Christian. Now, if you were to ask the early believers, early church believers in the first century, how they identified themselves religiously, how they would describe their faith practices, I guarantee almost none of them would say that they are a Christian. They would not identify themselves as Christians. In fact, the word Christian is only used three times in all of the Bible, and it's used as a pejorative. You know what that means? Like as a negative term. Like, whoa, you're going to, King Agrippa says, no, stop, stop talking, or you're trying to make me to become a Christian, like one of those Christians. It's kind of on the same par of being a, a fundamentalist, if you've heard that term before. It's kind of negative, or at least people use it negatively. If you were to ask the early Christians how they identify, they'd probably say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Or they would say, I'm a follower of the way, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That, that's probably what they would quote. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, how he identifies himself as religiously, he would most certainly probably not call him, he would not identify as a disciple or say a follower of the way. In all likelihood, and I know this from scripture, he would identify himself in this way. He would say, I am a man in Christ. I am a man in Christ. In Christ. Paul describes his status as a believer on the basis of his union with Christ over 70 times in his 13 letters in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, there are over 200 references to union with Christ. That's almost like once every single page in the New Testament. It, is, it overshadows the vast majority of how the scriptures, how the Holy Spirit identifies those who we would call Christians. Christian's not a bad term. We could keep using it. That's not what I mean. But overwhelmingly in scripture, we see that this idea of being in Christ is how Christians are <laughs> described. And tonight, all I want to do is focus on this doctrine of union with Christ. Because if you understand what it means to be in Christ, then you will understand what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. You will understand Ephesians, because we run into it over and over and over again. Remember I said that the main theme of, of Ephesians is cosmic reconciliation in Christ. You guys remember that? You guys tracking with me? Cosmic reconciliation, the idea that all things in heaven and earth will be united in Jesus Christ. Things that were once estranged, broken by sin, now brought into union with Christ. Well, I should have called it cosmic union with Christ because that's what this book is all about. And so let's briefly explore this doctrine. I want to do so by asking a couple simple questions. And the first thing is, JT, where are you getting this doctrine of union with christ in the scriptures where is it found and like i said it's literally everywhere it's literally everywhere and once you see it you cannot unsee it all right you cannot unsee it in scripture union with christ language is captured by four 
phrases. You could write these down or you could remember them. Whenever you come across these four little, that's eight, four little phrases, that's how you know you're encountering the doctrine of union with Christ. These four phrases consist of being in Christ or in him, right? In him, talking about Christ, whoever's talking about. In Christ, into Christ, with Christ, or through Christ. So whenever you see that, it's like believing into Christ. You're like, oh, union with Christ. Or we are in Christ, that's union with Christ. Or we're saved through Christ. You get the idea. But where do we see this in scripture? I want to start with Jesus's words in John chapter six. All right, you could stay in Ephesians. I'm just going to quote these to you. Jesus is talking to uh, a huge crowd and his disciples. And he says this word. It's really, it's kind of weird at first, but he says this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So this, the early Christians were called cannibals. Did you know that? Because they, they took the Lord's Supper, it represents the blood and the body. So the Romans called them cannibals, which is why they burned them, right? And so, but this idea of feeding on Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood has nothing to do with cannibalism, but has everything to do with believing in him. That those who are nourished in Christ, that feed on Christ by faith, abide in Christ and Christ abides in them. And the word abide means to make their home with. So John 15, 5, Jesus continues this and he says, remember he says, I am the vine. You guys remember this? I am the vine and you are the branches. And he says this, whoever abides or makes their home in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this idea is that Jesus is this living vine, right? And it has all the, it's it's growing. It, It has all the nutrients and we are the branches. And to believe in Jesus is to be a branch that's grafted into the vine. Otherwise, it's cast into eternal fire. And when, we're, when the branches are, are grafted into the vine, they receive the nutrients of the vine. They receive everything that they need for it to bear fruit. For apart from the vine, you will not bear fruit in your life, is the idea. You must be in union with Christ. And when that happens, you are in Christ and he is in you. Now, Ephesians 1, we see more of this language exclusively. If you got your pen your highlighter, your pencil, or your brain. You're going to need to take notes here, okay? First, let's start in verse three, and let's just, I'm just going to read. And we're going to notice every single time it says, in Christ or through Christ, okay? Paul says this, blessed be the God and Father, and you could underline and mark where you find these, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, a.k.a. Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Christ, you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay? So whenever you see a repeated phrase or word in Scripture, what needs to go off in your mind is, this is important. If I don't understand this, something, I'm missing the whole entire point. Ten different times in Christ is used in that short 11 verses. Another key passage on the doctrine of union with Christ is Romans chapter 6. You could turn there if you want. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 8. And in this section, it talks about being into Christ and with Christ. So we've seen the words in Christ and through Christ, now into Christ and with Christ. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1, it's really important. Paul just finished preaching the free grace of Christ. He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right before this. And then someone comes up and says to him, what shall we say then, Paul? Are we to continue sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. There's the with him. By baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, Like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. So you see, whatever Christ has done, We have done, if you're a Christian. Now you're kind of getting a fuller picture of what this means. The last section I want to draw your attention to is, or last passage, is 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. And in this passage, Paul uses certain metaphors to describe our union with Christ. He uses the metaphor of a body, the metaphor of marriage, and the metaphor of of temple and a building. And I want you to see just the application here of what it, how being in union with Christ affects the way that we view sin in our lives. Okay, I know we're doing a lot of reading, but here, this is the living word of God. We have to understand this. He says this, and he's talking to believers. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Christ is the head. We are the body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
Whoa, Paul, strong language here. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's the marriage union. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. And the logic is this. Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian, you are so united to Christ that if you were to take your body and join it with sin, in particular a prostitute, it is as if you're bringing Jesus into the bed with that prostitute. That's the implication on holiness, is that when you open your screen to observe wicked and, and perverse things, you are, doing, you are bringing Christ into that. That's how unified you are. If you're a believer... You are so in union with Christ that his body is your body, your body is his. That's the logic here. So he says, verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This is God's temple. God indwells inside of us if you are a believer. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pretty crazy stuff. Remember when Paul or Saul was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus flattens him on the road? And he, what, what does Jesus say to him? He says, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Paul never laid a finger against Christ. How was... Paul persecuting Jesus. How? By persecuting believers. That's how in union they are with Christ. To persecute a believer is to persecute Christ. And I'm just using that as an illustration that there's this mysterious, I don't know all the answers to it, beautiful spiritual union that believers have with Jesus and so seeing this doctrine of union with Christ all throughout Scripture, let's get really specific. Let's put the pieces together now and define it and then illustrate this, okay? So what does it mean to be united with Christ? In, in essence, it, it, it's really about being a Christian. That's what it is. So think about it this way. If you were to share the gospel with a non-believer, some of the things that you would probably say as you're witnessing to them and you're pleading with them, you would, you'd probably tell them that they're dead in sin, at the problem that they can't receive eternal life uh, on the basis of their good works is because they're dead in sin. They're plagued by unrighteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. They're defiled by sin. Sin corrupts every aspect of their life. They're enslaved to sin. John 33, you would probably say that. And you're, if you're in sin, you're separated from God. And if you don't believe, you'll be separated from Him for all of eternity. You would probably say all of those things. That's the bad news. But then you would say, but here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And they would say, but, but what's so good about Jesus? What's, what's the good news about Jesus? Well, in Jesus, Jesus brings life. He brings righteousness that you need. He brings reconciliation. He brings forgiveness. He brings transformation. All these things Jesus brings for sinners. But the question is this. I hope you're following along here. 
How is it that that sinner gains access to all of those things that Christ has, right? How is it that all those things, life, reconciliation, righteousness, forgiveness, how does that become theirs? How do we receive all of who Christ is? And the answer is that those who collapse into Christ by faith and repentance are united to him. They are made one with him. All that he is and all the blessings that Christ brings become yours when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 1.3 says. Look, look again. It says, he's talking to believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so here's the logic. Here's the logic of it. John Calvin illustrates this point. He says this, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that Christ possesses is nothing until we grow into one body with him by faith. Does that make sense? So a doctor may come to you and you have terminal cancer, let's just say, or terminal uh, virus or sickness, and you're about to die. And the, and the doctor says, hey, I have this cure. It could be yours today. And you're like, whoa, there's this awesome cure. Look at it. It could cure. I'm going to go tell my friends all these things. Look, there's a cure for this disease that I have. And I'm going to die. That's, that's great. Thank you. It's good news. But it never takes it. It remains useless, right? Unless he injects it into his body. It remains useless. And that's the idea. Is in Christ Jesus, is every single cure of every single broken piece of who you are and everything that you need is in Jesus Christ. And as long as you are apart from him, not believing in him, living in unbelief, you are estranged. You are separated from all those things. It remains useless. But the moment that you believe, all the blessings come to you. I mean, how useful is a dead phone, right? A phone that's dead, you can't use it. It's useless unless you plug it into the source. And all the blessings of Thomas Jefferson come, is it Thomas Jefferson? Uh, Electricity. What? (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) The electricity comes all into the phone and powers it, right? You know, some of you are big Tesla fans, right? It remains useless unless you hook it up to the charging station every 100 miles. Because those aren't very, they're not, no, a little bit better than that, right? But you need the blessings, right? And that's the idea is Jesus Christ is the conduit, is the channel by which all the blessings flow. And the way that you're united to him is by faith. Does that make sense? And so most of you probably think of salvation like a chain in the most, you know, in time, you know, God saves you. He, he, he gives you faith and repentance. He, you're, you're converted, you're justified, you're adopted, then you're sanctified, then you're glorified. And that's great. That's a biblical way to think about salvation like a chain. But some of the, the dangers in this is that those is that I see in the Christian church is that there are those in our church and those maybe amongst this group who think that Jesus Christ is only the entryway into the Christian life. 
He, he gets you saved, but then you maintain your salvation and attain heaven by your own works. And so Jesus is only, um, what's the word? Um, basically, I can't even think about it. The only way you apprehend Jesus is just to get in the door, but then you don't need him anymore. He's, he's useless after that. Or what Christians will do is that they will separate the benefits of the gospel from the person of Jesus. And so they'll come to church because they want forgiveness, because they want their shame taken away, or they want fellowship, but not Jesus. And so they separate the benefits from Jesus. But union with Christ is not like a chain. The way that we should think about salvation is union with Christ is like an umbrella. And underneath that umbrella flow all these blessings in Christ that you have in in the moment that you're saved. The moment that you receive Jesus. The gospel is a person, and that is Jesus. And your only hope in this life and death is if you are united to him. And in so doing, you receive every spiritual blessing in a moment. Every single one. So, what are the blessings? Next question. What are the blessings that we have in Christ? Well, Paul lists a bunch of them in verses 4 through 14 in Ephesians 1, which we're going to get to in the weeks to come. Oh, man, I didn't even, I didn't even hand out the, the... I had a bunch of... Darn it. I'm going to have to read this for you. But I have a little handout for you of all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. How did I forget this? Wow. Sorry, guys. Christmas isn't coming today. You're not getting the blessings. No. Uh, (laughs) So what are some of these blessings in Christ that we receive? I'm just going to go through these really fast. First is justification. It's the law court metaphor. We were once condemned by the law, but in Christ Jesus, the moment that you believe, you are justified. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, we receive sanctification. This is the holiness metaphor. We're no longer defiled by our sin. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says that in Christ Jesus, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Third, in Christ Jesus, we receive adoption. That's a blessing. We were once orphans, sons of wrath, sons of disobedience. But in Christ, we receive a new family. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.5. We receive in Christ reconciliation. That's the relational metaphor. We're no longer estranged, no longer strangers to Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. We have washing in Christ, right? We're no longer dirty. Ephesians 5, 25. He has cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That is the church. We have redemption in Christ Jesus. That's the slave market metaphor. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we receive redemption through his blood. We have in Christ the purchase. We've been purchased, the financial metaphor. We're no longer in spiritual debt. We went from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. 
You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20. And what was that price? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The life and the blood, the body and the blood of Christ. In Christ, we have freedom, liberation. We're no longer imprisoned. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In Christ Jesus, we have the new birth. We're no longer non-existent. <laughs> we're no longer estranged. The old self is, that's reconciliation, but we're no longer uh, in Adam. We're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3, in Christ, we have illumination. We're no longer blind. Ephesians 5, 7 through 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. In Christ Jesus, we have resurrection. We're no longer dead. Ephesians, I have this all listed out to you, so I'll get it to you. But I could, this, this isn't even exhausting it. We receive all, so all these things are found in Jesus Christ. You need new life, you need reconciliation, you need righteousness, you need illumination, you need new birth. All these things are only found in Jesus Christ. You will not find them apart from him. And so I love what Dane Ortland says here. He says this, if you are in Christ Jesus, Christian, here this Wednesday night, you get all these benefits. It's all or nothing. And this is why Paul says that because of God's saving work, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. The point that he's trying to make is that Jesus is the total package. He is the high-octane, no-weakness Savior. No-weaknesses Savior. All you need to do is to get into him, which happens irreversibly at conversion by yielding surrendering and trusting faith. All these things become yours. So we acquire union with Christ by faith and we continue to live the Christian life by faith, Galatians 2.20. And all the blessings that are in the storehouse of Christ's riches become yours. So how should we respond to this? First of all, there are many of you here that are in Christ Jesus, but are living in active sin. The illustration, it's really sad to me because you don't realize who you are in Christ. You're like a child who grew up in a very impoverished, poor family who was adopted into a wealthy family who provides all these riches for him and all this food for him and yet the adopted child still wakes up in the morning and goes to the food line to get food from to get bread for the day you're like what are you doing you have access to all these blessings and yet you're going back to your old life that's not how you should live anymore and then so as christians we need to live according to who we are you need to realize that that your life is not defined by your sin or by what you do. Secondly, how should we respond to this? Simple question. Are you in Christ Jesus by faith? If so, you do not have any of these blessings. If you are not in Christ, and there are some of you here today, this is what is true of you right now. You are not in Christ, you are in Adam. And in Adam, you stand condemned. You stand, you stand defiled. You're orphaned. 
You're estranged from God. You are spiritually dirty before God. You are enslaved to your sin. You are in debt to God. You are imprisoned by your sin. You are non-existent in a sense. You're not living according to who you are and what you were made for. You are blinded by your sin and you are dead in sin. As long as you are estranged from God, that is what the scriptures speak of you. And I say that because I want you to, to be in Christ Jesus, that you need the cure. And until you apprehend it by faith, you stand condemned now. And so are you in Christ Jesus? And our hope is that you would be. Next is with joy-filled assurance. You, how should we respond to this doctrine? This is the most assuring doctrine in all of Scripture. I've never found more assurance. What, what's the root word of assurance? Sure. Are you sure that you're a Christian? <laughs> You want surety? I don't even know if that, yeah, that might be a word. You want to be sure that you're a Christian? Union with Christ is your answer. Because at the deepest level of who you are, you are identified with Christ. And what Paul says is that for those in Christ, there is nothing in all of creation that will separate you from the eternal, infinite love of God. Last time I checked, God hates divorce and God doesn't divorce himself from those he's in union with. Period. And that's true of you. And I think of when Karen Meyer got baptized on Sunday. What is she? She's saying that the very, at the very core of who I am, I am identified with Christ. I've been buried with him and I'm raised a new life. I am washed. I am one of you. That's what baptism is. It's a picture of our union. And I love what Dane Orland says. I'm just going to read this. He says, if you could bear with an irreverent illustration. He says, think of yourself as an onion. <laughs> the outer peel consists of the peripheral things about you. The parts of you that don't matter much. Your clothes, the, cap you dri- the car you drive, things like that. If you peel away that layer, what, what's new Uh, is a collection of things slightly more essential to who you are. The family you are raised in, your personality profile, your blood type, your volunteer work. Peel that away. And the next deeper level layer is your relationships, your dearest friends, your roommates if you're a student, or your spouse if you're married. But peel that away. And the next deeper layer is what you believe about the world, the truths you cherish deep in your heart, who you believe God is, what your final future is, where you think world history is heading. The next deepest layer after that comprises your sins and secrets, your past and your present things about you that no one else knows but keep peeling away layer after layer everything that makes you you and what do you find at the core that you are united to christ that is the most irreducible reality about you peel everything else away and the solid immovable truth about you christian is your union with the resurrected christ this has to do with identity who you are that's why it's such a beautiful truth. And so, students, I, my suggestion to you, application, is start identifying yourself as being a man or woman in Christ. 
Who are you? You're not saying I'm the basketball player. Eh. You know, people say, what do you do for a living? Well, hi, my name is JT. I'm a pastor, right? No, hi, my name is JT. I'm a man in Christ. I'm a, you would say, girls, I'm a woman in Christ. <laughs> my wife would say that. Start identifying your life, everything about your life with Christ, not titles, not denominations, not your jobs, not your sports, but with Jesus. And because of union with Christ, you could say with Martin Luther, when I look at myself, I don't see how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. All that he is is yours. Lastly, why does Paul start off with Ephesians 1, reminding the church of who they are in Christ and all these blessings that they have? John Calvin gives two reasons, two applications for you as you leave. One, if you are a Christian, you need to lift your drooping heads and your fickle hearts to acknowledge how much we are bonded and indebted to God. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father. Acknowledge Him. Praise Him. Lift your drooping heads. Uh, Fix your fickle hearts by fixing them on Jesus Christ. And second, why does Paul want to give you all these blessings? Why do I want to assure you if you're a Christian with all these blessings? It's because we want to dazzle your minds and your hearts with the riches of grace so that you won't be fooled by the fool's gold of this world. Some of you are so... uh, uh, You lust after this world. You're so drawn to this world. But all these blessings that we have in Christ are there for you to keep your eyes dazzled on Christ. So lift your eyes. Look to your Savior on the cross. See his beauty. See his splendor. See his good works for you. See his reconciliation for you. See your king. See your older brother. See your Savior. See your great high priest. Your prophet. See the suffering servant in your place and then say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this precious truth, God. May you receive all the glory.